Welcome back to Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV. I'm Brad Wright. We are all going to pass sometime. Hopefully, when we have to go, it's in our sleep or some easy, relatively painless way because it just seems awful, terrible to have to die in complete agony. But it happens. Medical aid in dying is one way that people who are terminally ill with less than six months to live and can physically administer the fatal dose themselves can accomplish this mission in Vermont. Uh, Vermont is one of ten states where this can be done legally uh, with uh, thanks to the passage of H-39 and S-74. Those bills have been passed and have been in effect for a while. But it is still controversial, and there are those who may never feel that it is the right thing to do. So we are joined by Kim Callanan, the Chief Executive Officer at CompassionAndChoices.org. Kim Callanan, welcome to Vermont Viewpoint. Thanks so much for having me, Brad. Um, so as you know, there are those who view medical aid in dying as assisted suicide. What would you say to them to convince them otherwise? Yeah, medical aid in dying doesn't result in any more people dying. It simply allows a person who's already going to die the ability to choose um, how much suffering they want to endure. Um, so it's really different from suicide where, um, you know, the person um, has options for treatment. With medical aid in dying, their options have run out, and um, they're simply seeking compassion and the ability to chart their own own final chapter of their lives. It just seems like a hard thing to do when everybody must have in the back of their mind, if they're in this position, that, God, maybe there's that that one chance of a miracle. Um, Or or is that not, not the thought process of someone in this position? Well, I think what's important to remember is that it's, um, deeply personal, and um, it really depends on the own individual person's values um, and also um, how much suffering they're enduring. So um, it certainly isn't everybody's thought process because we know that, um, you know, there have been um, thousands of people who have chosen the option of medical aid and dying in the 10 authorized states in Washington, D.C., um, but it is a small handful of people that end up choosing the option. The vast majority of people um, you know, do um, allow for a natural death or, or a death um, in hospice care. Mm. The Linda Bluestein case, uh, which was written up uh, late last week in the Boston Globe, highlighted some of the shortcomings of the law in some states that have medical aid in dying. Um, uh, Vermont at one point was one of those states. Um, can you discuss the Bluestein case and why it was important? Sure. Um, so um, Linda Bluestein, an incredible woman who lived in Connecticut, was um, terminally ill, and um, she wanted the option of medical aid and dying, but unfortunately um, Connecticut did not, does not offer that as an option. Um, she was willing to travel to Vermont in order to get access to medical aid and dying, but at the time, the Vermont law had a residency requirement in place that would make it very difficult because she would have had to reestablish residency. Um, Compassion and Choices, the organization that I um, lead, that I lead, actually filed a lawsuit against um, 
the state of uh, Vermont, um, indicating that the residency restriction is unconstitutional. Um, the reality is that there's no medical procedure um, where someone is not allowed to travel um, to another state to receive. Um, and in the end, the um, state of Vermont did settle. Um, Linda was able to travel to the state, and then we went back to the legislature, and they updated their law and removed the residency requirement. Um. 802-244-1777 is the number to call if you would like to ask Kim Callanan a question about medical aid in dying. Um, do you foresee a, uh, a big change nationwide? Uh, we can, we'll talk about this in, in, in just a minute, but, um, are there, are there a lot of states that are chomping at the bit to, um, expand the legal option uh, for medical aid in dying or not so much? Oh, there absolutely are. And actually, we've kicked off um, this legislative session with the most promising start to any legislative session we've seen. Um, there are already 17 states that have active medical aid in dying legislation going through. Um, the New York um, Bar Association recently voted to support uh, medical aid in dying. So that was a big win in the state of New York. Um, in Virginia, they had two historic committee votes last week, um, the first time it's advanced through a committee in Virginia. Um, and then Minnesota also had a historic um, vote in one of its committees and advanced through. So we are expecting to see continued activity. Uh, Maryland is another state to watch this legislative session, um, and we are um, we're hoping that we're going to continue to see dominoes fall. We've had about one state on average per year either authorize or um, improve um, their medical aid and dying bills. Um, so uh, one of the things that has uh, has uh, has been a, a kind of an issue um, is the amount of time a person who is in severe pain would have to wait to get a prescription. And, um, and another one is suppose, uh, they just don't have the strength, the physical strength to be able to press a button or, or, or press a plunger or whatever has to be done, um, uh, to, to complete this process. Um, so the, the wait times, um, it, it do, do they make sense to you, or or are they something that should uh, be waived um, eventually? Yeah, that's a great question. So I have um, renamed the waiting period the suffering period. And to ask a person who is terminally ill to have to wait for 15 days um, when they are suffering an excruciating pain is just unconscionable. Um, you just it doesn't seem like that much if you're healthy. But if you've ever sat bedside with somebody who's in a lot of pain, 15 days is a really long time. Um, as um, concerning is that we know from data in other authorized states in Oregon and California in particular um, that um, about a third to half of the people die trying to make it through the waiting period um, because people get their prognosis very late. Doctors are reticent to tell somebody that they're terminally ill. Um, and so people are literally suffering. They want the ability to control the end. They want to have that final action in their life, and they're denied um, access to the bill. So the waiting period, while well-intended, um, truly is a suffering period. And we're seeing a trend across the states with states um, 
dropping the waiting period primarily down to 48 hours um, just to kind of give someone a, a final check. Um, and in New Mexico, they even um, allow physicians to waive the 48 hours if the person is imminently going to die. Hmm. Um, the people who line up against legislation like this uh, often cite the potential for abuse, that uh, that maybe uh, someone – uh, maybe a family member or, a, or, or someone as a, as a theoretical friend of the patient, um, might encourage them to do this to speed up the process, um, if for some selfish reason. And, uh, uh, what has been the response to, to that allegation? Yeah. Well, I mean, early on, um, you know, 25, 26 years ago, when the opposition came forward and first started um, bringing forward these concerns, you could understand them because it had never been tested. Um, but now we have um, 26 years of experience in Oregon, and we have 10 states in Washington, D.C., and it's been in, you know, very diverse states like California and Colorado, and there's simply no abuse or coercion. The reality is that the law requires the patient to um, make the decisions from start to finish. They have to request the medication multiple times in writing and verbally. Um, they have to be able to ingest the medication themselves, which is one of the safeguards. Um, and so it's really there's not really a way that a third party um, could get through that whole process with multiple providers verifying um, that it's coming directly from the patient. There is far more protections around medical aid and dying than there is over many other dangerous routine drugs that are around you. You could overdose from cold medicine if you wanted to, um, or at the end of life with hospice care, you get shipped large amounts of um, pain-relieving medication, which could cause over overdoses. So there are certainly risks in life um, with medication, but with the safeguards that are in place for medical aid and dying, it just um, they just don't exist. It's um, it's really been time tested and proven. Is there uh, a case to be made that you know uh, someone could say, look, you know, want, you know, morphine takes the pain away and also helps you know uh, this. Uh, dying process along um, if it's if it's given in sufficient doses for long enough. Um, does anybody say why not just use morphine um, and, until it's over? Well, morphine is one of the drugs that's a part of the of the cocktail that is used for medical aid and dying. Um, so, if you mean um, wh like why not give people the option of themselves taking just the allowable amount of morphine um, to control their pain. Um, there's breakthrough pain in about 25% of the cases where no matter, uh, with cancer in particular, where no matter how much medication you're giving to the person, um, it just isn't controlling the symptoms. Um, so that's one reason. And then the second reason is that ultimately um, how one dies um, should be up to the dying person and how much suffering they endure should be up to that person. And for some people, um, that final act of being able to author their chapter, plan when they're going to have their loved ones around them, make sure everybody is there, is a really important for them to be able to pass to the next side. And I've had the, the pleasure of really witnessing some very intimate moments and 
I can't begin to explain the difference of when someone is able to plan and say goodbye and um, have those moments, the difference that it makes in their lives. And so for some people, that's something that they want to be able to plan out. Mm, That's a great point. Kim, your organization is um, largely working on uh, getting uh, medical aid in dying legislation passed in all 50 states. Um, two of the states that have legislation pending, as we've discussed, uh, that, that where it's in progress are New Hampshire and Virginia. Um, I lived in Virginia for a long time. This feels like a really big deal in, in that state because it's a southern state. Um, is it a bumpy road or is this, or is this going along pretty well? Uh, well, so this year we've made some really historic progress in Virginia with um, two successful hearings, votes out of hearings, which has never happened before. Um, so that's, you know, pretty tremendous. Um, you know, but every movement, um, it's about, you know, making consistent steps forward and having the resilience and the resolve um, to continue moving forward. It was two decades to pass the law in Hawaii and multiple decades to pass the law in California. So, um, you know, it takes time in every state, um, and it will in Virginia and it will in New Hampshire. But what is exciting is to see um, really significant progress that we're making. We're building legislative support. We already have the public on our side. Um, and, you know, we'll see some continued progress um, and hopefully some states, some additional states that authorize this year. Governor Glenn Youngkin uh, ran uh, to a limited degree on uh, a pro-life platform. Do you expect that he would sign this bill um, should it uh, pass uh, the legislature in Richmond? Yeah, so I never speak for a a lawmaker on what I expect them to do or not to do. Um, What I will say is that, you know, whether you're a Democrat, a Republican, or an independent in the state of Virginia, and frankly in every state, um, people want the option of medical aid and dying. They want the ability to avoid the very worst, the very last part of the dying process. So my hope is that the governor would listen to the will of the constituents in his state and um, vote to support um, the legislation that they are supportive of. Yeah, I suppose he has the option uh, from a political perspective of allowing the bill to become law without his signature. Um, in, in Vermont, uh, there is an organization, patientchoices.org, um, which, if you agree with, uh, this kind of legislation, has done a fabulous job of, of getting, uh, legislation, uh, passed and enhanced, um, uh, with, um, uh, not only just Act 39 to get the original bill passed, but also some, um, some pretty good enhancements that have, uh, had the effect of streamlining the process a little bit. And they are working in New Hampshire to uh, impact legislation that is uh, in process there now. Um, do you expect that to work in New Hampshire? What's your sense? Um, so I think that in every state um, there is the potential for this legislation to pass um, as long as people continue to 
um, to generate support for it. So will it happen this year in New Hampshire or next year or the year after or, you know, five years from now? It all really depends on um, how much pressure um, individual people, especially those who are terminally ill, um, put on their lawmakers to act in their interest. And, um, you know, we've seen in states that um, all it takes is um, a single legislature who's had their own personal experience with death really coming forward and being an advocate. So it's not a party line vote. Um, this is really about um, voting for a more compassionate end and greater options, and it's deeply personal. It seems like there's, uh, uh, you know, one answer to the question here could be a federal law. Um, you're a lobbying organization. Would a law like this have a chance in Congress? So, um Medicine is really governed at a state level, so it would be very difficult um, to pass um, a law at the federal level to govern the practice of medicine like um, a medical aid and dying law. So you have both the how could you craft a law like that, um, but you also have the political reality of a law right now. So um, the um, courts, when we went um, back you know, 20 years ago when we brought this before the courts, um, the answer was you need to go state by state to pass the legislation. And that's what we've been doing ever since. Um, and I do think that at the end of the day, by doing the hard work of going state by state, we're building the political will and the support that's needed to make this a permanent part of um, of end of life care. I would imagine that um, as you lobby, you know, the various state legislatures that this this takes money. Um, who 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 was your who was your financial backing uh, to get this stuff done? We are um, a grassroots movement. Um, we are funded by um, tens of thousands of individual donors who give us contributions at all levels, um, and we really are representative of the movement. We don't get corporate funding. Um, we get very few foundation fundings, except for small family foundations. Um, so. We are um, funded by individuals, both um, living and um, as a part of their, their legacy. Um, so anyone that's out there listening, if you're interested in this issue, go to CompassionAndChoices.org because you are how we are able to continue the progress. What about the idea of uh, direct democracy, um, a referendum similar to what happened in uh, like Ohio where pro, uh, pro-choice law uh, won on a, a vote directly on a single issue? Yeah, we know that if we could um, do initiatives in every state that um, there's no question that we would win. Um, we brought it um, – the first two states to pass, Oregon and Washington, were both by initiative. Um, and then when we did our Colorado campaign in 2016, um, that was by initiative. Um, the Colorado campaign, just to give you a sense of the cost of that, um, was about $5 million to fund. Um, so it is extremely, extremely expensive, and we unfortunately are up against um, very well off um, the Catholic Church and the organizations for the Catholic Church. And um, for us to be able to get raise the resources to do ballot initiatives um, makes it just very challenging to do that. Um, but you're absolutely right. Um, if we could do ballot initiatives everywhere and spend a comparable amount to what the Catholic Church would be able to spend, um, this would be a law in all states that allow initiatives. How do they present their opposition? Uh, how does the Catholic Church present their opposition? They yeah. lobby. 
Um, they have um, advertisements, um, billboards, uh, radio, TV. Um, I mean, they are, you know, significantly better funded than we are. Um, and, you know, they carry this along with, you know, the rest of their agenda. And they're just, they're, they're you know, very, very, very powerful. Um, however, you know, the good news is that we have public opinion on our side. We're on the right side of history. Um, and that ultimately what we're seeing is that the will of the people eventually um, eventually wins. So, you know, we are going to keep at it. We've authorized about a, a new state each year um, for the since 2015 when Brittany Menard first shared her story with her husband, Dan Diaz. Um, and we expect that that progress is going to continue because ultimately um, this is what the public wants. And we've gotten to the point where our medical system um, isn't in line with people's values, and the advances of medicine are terrific, but um, they are resulting in incredible suffering at the end of life, and that we're walking away on people when they're in their time of need. How often do you lose uh, in, a, in, a, in a legislative vote? Um, well, I mean, typically we've got, you know, 17 or 18 um, states that are going in any given year. And, you know, our goal is to authorize one new state a year. So, you know, you lose a lot, um, but that's okay. It's not about how much you lose. It's about how much you end up winning. And creating change is incredibly diff difficult. Um, and that's why we need, you know, people to come together and, um, you know, volunteer and donate um, and share their stories um, and reach out to the organizations and the individuals they know, because ultimately that's what results in change. Hmm. Fascinating, fascinating stuff. I do have uh, uh, just one last question um, uh, very quickly. Um, in Vermont, uh, it's my understanding you have to be able to administer the fatal dose yourself. Um it's not hard to imagine somebody who's being so weak and in such pain, they can't really thumb down a plunger. I mean, is that how it works? Yeah, so there's um, this is a great question, um, and it is one of the biggest challenges because the self-administration aspect of it is um, – is what um, is one of the safeguards that's in place in order to protect vulnerable populations. There are several different ways that a person can self-administer. So you seconds. can just sip from a straw. Um, you can push a plunger, and some people will use their head. I mean, in any part of their body. Okay. Um, so those are two ways. Um, and then there is some technology that's being developed that might even allow someone to to use like their eyes. So right. they have to take an affirmative act themselves, okay. and that is really. Um, designed to ensure that it is the person that wants the option and it's the protection that's in place to okay. avoid coercion. So, Kim Callanan, thank you so much for your, uh, for your time today. This is Ramon Viewpoint on WDEV. Welcome back to Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV. I'm Brad Wright. Now it's time to think a little bit about entertainment now, and uh, with Valentine's Day just around the corner on February 14th, what's the plan? You know, stay home with the kids, planning a romantic dinner out, red roses? How about this for a little something different? My Psychic Valentine. Joining us now to discuss the idea of a psychic valentine is Thea Lewis. Now, you may know her from the Ghost Walk in Burlington tours or perhaps from one of her books like The True Crime Stories of Burlington, Vermont and Wicked Vermont. Thea, Thea Lewis, welcome. It's wonderful to speak with you again. 
Thanks for having me, Brad. All right. Um, you know, I got to say, uh, it's it's great to be wicked. Uh, I just want to throw that in there. Um, <laughs> um, so, uh, so my psychic Valentine, tell us about what this is and and, and where you got the idea for it. Well, my psychic Valentine is kind of a jump on Valentine's Day. We're doing it on February thirteenth, and uh, and one of those things that kind of popped out at me. I one of the things that I have done for years. People know me as um, you know Vermont's Queen of Halloween, but what a lot of people might not know is that for years I've done I've done tarot readings for people. And tarot readings are simply getting in touch with your sort of mystical side, uh, perhaps taking a, a snapshot of what might be happening to you in the future uh, through these wonderful cards that have iconic images on them, and I would interpret the cards. So uh, just in the last couple of years, I discovered that you can also, uh, there's a simpler way to be able to forecast your future or take a look at what's going on in your life Um you know, months or maybe even years from now, and it's called charm casting. And I think for a lot of people, charm casting is an appealing concept because instead of having to memorize all these iconic images on a tarot card, you're just dealing with very simple images that are iconic or, in the case of maybe little mementos that you've saved, like, oh, say, um, I gave an example of... um, when my husband and I got married, I had a special pair of earrings and then lost one of them. I wasn't uh, I wasn't able to bring myself to get rid of the single earring I had left. And since um, I'm not a pirate and not young enough to walk around sporting one single earring and pull it <laughs> off, you know, yeah. I'm not carrying this off anymore. Um, so I, I kept that. But that would be something that someone who was charm casting would be able to do. Take these little mementos that mean something to them, throw them together with some very basic charms, and then um, with a chart that you would have that you would cast these charms on with your hands, think about casting dice, you'd be able to look at different realms of your life. Huh. Charm casting. I thought that's what I was doing. Um, <laughs> All your life, Brad. Yeah, sure, life. sure. Um, so uh, uh, what what has um, – can you recall a few, uh, a few moments uh, when you've had to turn the card over and uh, might not have been what you or your guest were expecting? There have been plenty of times that that's happened. And, um, you know, one of the things about being a tarot reader is um, you have to bring a lot of life experience and common sense into your readings. You have to be able to look at the person you're reading and kind of gauge their temperament and how much information uh, or how little information uh, you're able to give them and they're able to receive. But, yeah, no, there have been there have been plenty of times. There was a there's a very uh, kind of for me. Uh, famous time when I did a tarot reading over the phone. It was one of my first um, over-the-phone readings um, right before the pandemic, and it was a full moon, and all of these really strange things just kept coming out in this reading, and I kept getting all of these really weird images in my head, and the woman on the other end of the line just kept saying, I don't even know. She was she was so skeptical um, from the viewpoint of how in the world did I know so many things about her and her family? And we had never met. I didn't know her family. But it was just a question of, I guess, um, the universe and the cards just uh, managing to meet and coincide in the same place. But uh, there have definitely been people who, who didn't want to hear things um, 
that I have told them too, and and that's a that's a whole other ball of wax. Oh, I'll bet. Are. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, uh, we were just talking about medical aid and dying. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, um, uh, how how many people do you get for uh, for this uh, my psychic Valentine event? Well, we are. Um, we are going to be topping out. We still have we still have room. We are going to be topping out at forty participants, and this is going to be kind of part um, part class, part uh, kind of crazy get together. I'll not just be teaching people how to do their own charm casting and sending them away with a little complimentary bag of charms at the end of the evening. I'm going to be doing. Uh, I'm going to be telling stories, and some of the stories are going to be. Burlington stories, and some of the stories will be stories of my own, but they will all have to do with love or Valentine's Day or love gone wrong. And um, people will also be able to enjoy a cash bar. There's going to be a complimentary sweet and savory buffet. So I'm looking at this uh, on February 13th, this My Psychic Valentine event, as just a big party between me and hopefully 40 of my uh, most personal friends. <laughs> okay, okay. We'll, uh, all become, we'll all become much closer by the end of the evening. Well, I'm sure that uh, the cash bar will help people loosen up a little. Um, a little bit. Yeah. And I'll also be doing some one-card draws with people in the audience. I'll be, uh, uh, I, I do something at larger events where I'll just walk up to somebody with my deck of cards and say, pick a card, and then they pick the card and I read it. So we'll be doing some of that, too. Oh, wow. So, um, so the, I'll bet that's packed with surprise. Oh yeah, it's it's always a lot of fun, and uh, the most fun for me is when I do a reading for someone, uh, a one card reading like that, and it's a very brief thing. But if it's accurate, usually if a person has hangers on or friends with them who know them and they realize it's accurate, that can be a lot of fun. Oh, I'll bet, I'll bet. Uh, so, uh, my psychic Valentine, where where does this all happen, and 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 and, and let us know when and and what time and all that. We have been lucky enough to get the we um, we've secured the uh, Frank Lloyd Wright Room at Three Needs Tap Room on Pearl Street in Burlington, and the event will begin at 7 p.m. with doors at 6:30. And if folks want to get in on the fun, um, we I just think it's going to be a great evening. It's something I've never done before, but I really love a challenge of of uh, taking something that I've done personally and and uh, teaching other people how to do it. So um, so we're looking at uh, being there with doors at 6.30 and just a lot of fun all evening long. All right. All right. And um, how, can they, how can they sign up? How can they get in touch? They want to go to Seven Days Tickets. We've had with uh, Queen City Ghost Walk, uh, all of our walks and events, we've had such a great time working with Seven Days Tickets. So people will go to Seven Days Tickets, and all they have to do is search My Psychic Valentine in the search bar, and it'll bring the event right up for them. Okay. So uh, let's see. So the Frank Lloyd Wright room uh, is just inside the Three Needs Tap Room. Right. At, at right. 185 Pearl Street in Burlington, and it's at 7 o'clock on Tuesday, February right. 13th. It doesn't That's happen right. on Valentine's Day because because that way they still have time to go out and do something else Valentine related, right? Still, that's right. So I'm, what I'm saying about this event is, you know, whether you're crazy in love with someone or you're single like a Pringle, you can come to this event with your friends or your lovers, and it's just a it's just going to be a good time. It's a Tuesday night, but uh, as I always say, when we have early week events, why should Friday and Saturday have all the fun? 
Hey, listen, exactly. And plus, it's at 7 <laughs> o'clock, so you can still get home and go to bed on time, right? That's right. Uh, all right. Uh, Thea, you have been doing the Ghost Walk Tour for a while. Um I think we're all kind of intrigued by the supernatural. I know you don't want to real, reveal too much here, but can you tell us about the ghosts in Burlington? You're getting pretty good reviews about this, I, I see. Oh, gosh. Well, uh, you know, Burlington is uh, a much more haunted place than people might realize. And, yeah, I've been doing Queen City Ghost Walks in the city of Burlington since 2002. When I started, I'll give you an example of, of of how haunted we are. When I started, I was so intrigued by a walk I went on in Salem, Massachusetts, uh, the land of the land of all things spooky. And I came back and I started wondering why Burlington didn't have a haunted tour. And so I decided that I would build one. I did research on the buildings and the haunts for about a year. But my first tour um, was five locations, um, maybe six stories, five locations. And now, um, 20 years, well, 21 years later, I am looking at being able to, we've got, people might know, we've got a lot of construction that has gone on in the city of Burlington, and sometimes I have to change my route. So there are probably um, 15 to 20 possible stories now, all these years later, that I can, that I could tell uh, if I needed to change direction, if there's something happening in downtown. Um, one of my favorite stories is the story of the, um, the Follett House, which a lot of people might know as the Pomerleau Real Estate Building that overlooks the lake. It is a yeah. beautiful, yeah, beautiful mid, uh, beautiful mid 1800s, uh, place that a lot of people who've lived in Burlington for decades might remember as our local Veterans of Foreign Wars Club, the VFW. But, uh, that building was owned by a railroad tycoon named Timothy Follett all those years ago. He's the guy who had it built. And it's one of the most haunted places, not just in Burlington, but in the state of Vermont. Hmm. Uh, when you say haunted, uh, what does that mean? Are people seeing ghosts or, or feeling like a tap on the shoulder and they turn around? There's nobody there or, or what, what happens? The ghosts inside the Follett House have been experienced in lots of different ways. Um, one of the ways they've been experienced is through the um, electronic devices within the house, lights going on and off by themselves, radios, things like that. I was lucky enough with a group called the Vermont Spirits Detective Agency, uh, folks whose uh, their their little um, sort of tagline uh, was the private eye for those who've died. That was, <laughs> but they are yeah. uh, wonderful folks. We we were allowed to go into the Follett House um, overnight and investigate, and we had a lot of people familiar with. Um, ghost shows on TV, ghost, ghost hunters, whatever, will know that a drop in temperature will often mean that there is the presence of spirit activity. We had a drop of about 10 degrees in what was the old dining room uh, inside the inside the Pomerleau real estate place years ago when we went in uh, for an investigation. People have talked about things on their desks being removed or moved to funny locations in the building. And uh, and Mr. Pomerleau, the elder, Antonio Pomerleau, who's since passed away, would often tell stories about his experiences in the building. Um, we've gotten accounts from employees, from a gentleman who was who was called in to kind of investigate what was going on with the energy in the building. And um, he was actually a dowser from Scotland with a lot of a lot of experience with supernatural activity. And he said that he encountered Timothy Follett's wife, who was so upset that 
in this home where she was always telling her high-powered type A personality husband to slow down, there were actually people working in every single room in her home, and she couldn't stand it. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> wow. Um, yeah. I, you know, all that time I thought it was just Ernie. Um, but, but, um, Ernie uh, is a dynamo. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, it, it does, um, does the, do you, do you feel it yourself? Um, uh, you know, at times, um, when you think something might happen, do you, do you think you're being toyed with? Um, is there, uh, um, uh, are the and you know people also wonder about whether the spirits are angry or not? Yeah, you know, I have yet to encounter an angry spirit. My theory is that I don't know exactly where ghostly activity comes from. Some people, um, some people uh, call its inception, you know, religious. Other people uh, call the presence of what we see as ghosts as scientific, but. Um, I've never really, um, people talk about demons and things like that. I've never had an encounter like that. I do always feel peculiar energy. When people ask me on my tours, um, have you seen a ghost? And I say, I have never seen a ghost. I've seen ghosts, but never seen ghosts on my tours because, of course, I'm always looking at the folks telling them stories while they're looking at whatever I'm talking about behind me. But I am hoping this April... Uh, spirit activity is ramped up enough for an event that we're going to be having in advance of the eclipse, um, so that maybe I'll maybe I'll actually get to see some of that that psychic uh, psychic happening too. I mean, we have had people on the tours who um, have claimed to see things um, while they were looking at particular buildings, um, but um, but so far the ghosts that I've seen have been when I've been out and about, kind of doing my my own thing, not in yeah. a work environment, but um, yeah. So, okay. but we are having a we are having a three day event before the eclipse called the Path of Ghostality, and uh, because uh, that kind of that kind of uh, psychic that excuse me that uh, that kind of planetary event often does ramp up psychic activity. It does. It does. It does. And isn't that funny? Yeah. Um, you know, the, the the planets have an effect. Uh, the planets affect us. I mean, look at the moon and the tides. So if we've got a big, um, if we've got a big astrological event going on, uh, like this path of totality running right across Burlington, then I feel pretty certain that we might feel it cosmically as well. Hmm. Uh, if you would like to ask uh, Thea Lewis a question about her experiences with the supernatural or even a tarot card reading, please give us a call at 802-244-177. That's the number to call. Um, the Ghosts and Legends of Lake Champlain, the waterfront tour, what happens there? Oh, the waterfront tour is one of my favorites because we get to talk about some of the really um, is some of the roots of what made the city of Burlington. People um, don't think a lot about um, about the ghostliness of, uh, for instance, the uh, uh, remnants of the, the Abnaki uh, or other tribes who used to meet the Abnaki out there at that rock in the middle of Lake Champlain called Rock Dunder. Uh, people used to used to stop at that rock and and uh, discuss their treaties and exchange gifts. But um, but there there is a wonderful sort of native presence on the waterfront and in different parts of Burlington that folks have experienced. 
um, the waterfront tour is a real mixed bag of um, of native legends of um, maybe 1800s, 1900s ghostly activity, and also um, something that people don't maybe consider a lot of um, on our waterfront: UFO activity. Uh, we are kind of a a magnet for UFO activity here in the state of Vermont and particularly around the region between uh, Burlington and Plattsburgh. There have been lots of sightings. And uh, in fact, um, one of the stories in in uh, Ghosts and Legends of Lake Champlain deals with something that happened out at a camp called Buff Ledge many years ago in the 60s. Hmm. Um, it was a presumed abduction. So the waterfront tour, uh, just because of its variety, I think, is is always a lot of fun for me. And, and guests have enjoyed it, uh, have told me that they've enjoyed it as well. Okay. Um, uh, we kid a little bit here, but I know that uh, the people who are really serious about the supernatural, they see things that can't be explained away. Right. Uh, right. That's, uh, you know, uh, what I always tell folks, there's a story that I like to tell on our um, – we have a tour at Lakeview Cemetery called Fright by Flashlight. started off as a tour – uh, I thought people were saying, oh, we'd love a tour for kids because the downtown tour, um, you know, um, if you get below a certain age, it can be a little is, – is a little scarier, a little saucy, if you will. So um, in response to parents saying, we'd like a tour that, you know, we can take our kids on, we did Fright by Flashlight. But as we went along, it's now our third year doing it, and Fright by Flashlight, which people can um, can look at YouTube and look at last year's – Stuck in Vermont from Seven Days from the wonderful Eva Solberger. Uh, she did. A, she featured us um, and Lakeview Cemetery. If they want to look up Fright by Flashlight, they'll see how much fun it is. We started off as something for families, and now I would say 75% of the folks who go on Fright by Flashlight um, are are grownups. Um, so um, wow. it's it's. Oh, go ahead. Well, no, I was just going to say, wow, it, it, it's it's uh, it, it all of it is is um, uh, uh, interesting, and and the local legends uh, really are re- really do have something to them, you know, um, and and it's fascinating because there's so much history here that it's it's uh, almost um, hard to contain, you know what I mean? Um, uh, Thea, I, I guess we have to wrap up, but uh, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Thea Lewis um, is. Uh, a terrific author. We didn't even get to the true, uh, to the true crime stories of Burlington, um, but uh, I, which I regret. But thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we appreciate it very much. You're quite welcome. Take care. All right. Thank you, Thea Lewis, uh, author and uh, uh, the uh, tour leader for. Um, for ghost tours, really, really something else. Um, I'm going to take just a quick moment to thank uh, WDEV General Manager Steve Cormier, Lee Cattell, Greg Titus, uh, and Dan McGivergan, and the rest of the crew here in Waterbury for allowing me to host a really important discussion of current events here in Vermont. This is my last scheduled program on Viewpoint, and I, as I just haven't been able to manage my schedule well enough while conducting this program on Tuesdays and the other things that I have going on. Um, so I do want to say thank you uh, to them. Uh, uh, please, please keep listening. An informed populace is crucial to our democracy, and democracy is crucial to our way of life. So until we talk again, I just want to say thanks for listening to Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV.